Welcome to Reimagining the Contact Center. I'm your host, Mark Bernstein, and my guest today is Justin Robbins, Chief Evangelist at CX Effect and founder of J.M. Robbins and Associates. Justin Robbins. How are you, man? <laughs> Good, Mark. How are you doing? Good. That was the intro. The intro was, it's Justin Robbins. You're supposed to be like, uh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like we're, uh, you're entering a boxing ring or something like that. Uh, I should have thrown the towel over my head. That would have been even better. Gosh, I'm doing it wrong already, Mark. Uh, that's okay. I was about to sing the Rocky theme song, so it was about to get even worse. Perfect. I'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no one needs that. Uh, but Justin, uh, you're, I was reading your bio uh, before we hopped on and noticed that you got involved in the CX space in a really interesting way. And you hear this all the time, uh, delivering newspapers as an adolescent. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that started? Totally, Mark. So I grew up the son of a lifetime newspaper guy. My dad was in the newspaper industry most of his life. And of course, being a young boy, he uh, inspired me one day to, you know, earn my keep and take up a paper route. I worked in a pretty big town and was centrally located. So I had one of the best routes, which I certainly appreciated, you know, for the nickel I earned per paper or whatever it would be. But actually one day got a call from the woman who was kind of responsible for all of the paper carriers, simply asking, did I want to earn some extra money. And of course, like that's how my mind was wired right then is yes, I want to earn extra money. What I have to do. She said, just show up to the newspaper and we'll explain it from there. Walked into that, the office for the very first time. And it was just a row of phones. Uh, there was giant stacks of dot matrix printer paper. And on every one of those sheets was the name addresses and phone numbers of everybody in my hometown. And so my first contact center experience was through that, uh, interrupting people's dinner times and offering them newspaper subscriptions. And I joke because, you know, I, I, I feel like I probably at some point told her that I would never do anything like that ever again. But the reality of it is Mark that I still think back to, and can very distinctly remember the printout that we would get up at the start of every day. And it would have, if anybody was on vacation, it would have any changes in delivery if you got a new address. But what it also listed on there were people's preferences. So someone could say, I would love for my newspaper to be put between my front door and my screen door, or please don't fold the paper. I'd love it rolled, right? There are all of these different types of preferences. And I remember the... The value, and I can't, I can't explain what it was at that moment, but I, I, re I recognize that this is important to people and I need to make sure that I deliver on what they're asking for, what they're expecting. And so that to me is one of the things that still sticks with me today from that first experience is the importance of uh, understanding customer preferences, the importance of meeting expectations, you know, but it's, it's also fun that I can say, yeah, I spent time in a call center as a 12-year-old, right? Yeah. Uh, and then when you call people and you said hi, my name is Justin. Didn't they say like, hi, you're 12? Well, what, there were two funny things that happened to me. One, I can't tell you. <laughs> I would call somebody 
and it would happen to be the parents of one of my friends. And, <laughs> you know, then it would be like, oh, hang on, hang on, Justin, I'll get Dave. And it's like, no, actually, I'm calling because I want you to buy a newspaper subscription. Uh, please, oh, please. Uh, but the other thing, think about what's happening in a, you know, a boy's life at the age of 12. And I know there were definitely a few occasions where, you know, if the inflections were just a little bit different on my voice, I might try calling back a second or third time to see if, you know, they didn't recognize me and I could, I could get the sale that time around. You know, Justin, I'll tell uh, everyone about my first ever sales call. Uh, and by the way, I was not 12. I was like 22 or something. And um, I'm on the phone and I had done, it was a one full day of training. And it's like, you do one day of training, then you get on the phone. And uh, I'm, I get on the phone and I have everything uh, prepared and they said, hello. And I, and I was so nervous. I couldn't get the words out. So it actually sounded like, hi, my name is Mark. They said, hello. And I was like, hi, my, my name is Mark. Like I couldn't get the words out and uh, they hung up and that was my, my first ever call. And I was like, geez, is it always going to be this hard? And it turns out, no, <laughs> it is not. It is not always that hard. Gosh, Mark, that's so it's so funny you mentioned that I, I think of the only other time in my life that I actually had a role that was in sales and it was for an AM radio station. I remember taking a test. They had you take a test to kind of see what your profile was. And, and I scored as a promoter and I happened to know the station manager again, situation where it was uh, one of my friend's dads owned the station. And he said, Justin, you're wired as a promoter, but let's see if we can make that work in sales. Um, the, the short story is no, no, it didn't work in sales, but I had a similar call. Where my very, one of my very first calls is I actually had to go to a, a horse vet and was trying to get them to buy an ad, an AM radio ad, right? For, you know, whatever type of medication one would give to horses and whatnot. And same thing. I remember sitting in my car, terrified to walk up to this old farmhouse and knock on their door, asking them if they'd, you know, buy this radio spot. Uh, so, you know, it's fine, Mark. Some of us were just not, we're just not, we're not, not, not cut out for it. At least not the first time around. <laughs> and I, I can imagine you went to them and said, my research uncovered 42 horse owners in the, in the 1200 mile radius. <laughs> Gosh, you know, if I hadn't been 18, I probably... <laughs> <laughs> Would have had a little bit better pitch than, hey, you want to sponsor the, the horse show on the radio? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, well, then, Justin, I noticed a, a little later, uh, as you uh, grew into a man uh, and you got a, a real job, um, which obviously that's a real job, but you got your second real job, uh, you did a training and guest experience at Hershey Park. And I, I think that the theme park world has so much to teach customer experience. And everyone obviously looks at Disney as the shining example of that. Um, but I freaking love Hershey Park. I went there all the time as a kid. What was that like for you? Gosh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, sweetest place on earth, right? You know all about it. And even the the streets are lined, the street lights, right? Are the Hershey Kisses wrapped and unwrapped? So my office was at the corner of Chocolate and Cocoa Avenue. Can't make that up. <laughs> And my responsibility was actually across our entire destination. So in addition to Hershey Park, we had hotels, we had restaurants, golf courses, uh, entertainment complexes, all of these things. And like a Disney or like another destination type of you know, experience, 
we were really focused on a few things. One, making sure that we were setting uh, excitement and expectation upfront, right? So if somebody called into 1-800-HERSHEY and that's where, you know, really a lot of my time and effort was focused was with the team for 1-800-HERSHEY was how do we set a great first impression? How do we really paint the picture of what the experience would be like? And then it comes a matter of, can we deliver on that once people actually get there? Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I, when you ask the question of what was it like, um, you know, I'll, I'll ask you what, what would it be like for you if after a really rough day, you could walk out of your office and go ride a roller coaster or, what would it be like if in every single break room, there were seemingly bottomless bowls of chocolate? Uh, it's a lot of fun. And that, you know, the long and the short of it, it is, it's a fun brand to be a part of. It's a really cool legacy. It's a, it's um, frankly an awesome story that is, you know, the, the background to this brand. And I had a ton of fun there. I learned a lot. We experienced a lot. And for me, that was, that was the catalyzing moment in my career in terms of understanding the, the true importance of customer experience and finding out what it really takes to catalyze uh, a bunch of people around this idea. So much, so much stuff that, um, you know, stands out to me from my time there, but, you know, in, in, in a, I guess a shorter way of what was it like, it an awesome experience for me, transformational to my career. Oh, amazing. Uh, I'm going to ask you all about like, how you created that excitement and that brand. Uh, Cause I think that is like absolutely invaluable. Uh, but first the wild mouse, you know, the ride, the wild mouse. Uh, is that, the, is that what, oh, So that's the thing is there's a huge debate because everyone goes, Oh, it's so simple. You just goes up and then spit, you know, goes around and around and around. And I'm like, it takes a couple goes to get the wild mouse. You need to get it. What do you think? You are sick, sick man. <laughs> really? I, I'm, I'm, dude, that, that ride scares me so much. And what's funny is I, I maybe rode it once when I worked at Hershey and it's, you know, it is a type of coaster and gosh, back when I was at Hershey, I could probably tell you the different types of roller coasters that are out there, but there's a name for the type of roller coaster that, that wild mouse is. And I was in uh, one of the theme parks in California, uh, outside of San Jose, it's probably like a Six Flags or something along those. And a, a bunch of people I was with wanted to go on essentially what would be the, you know, like the cousin coaster to the Wild Mouse. And so I did it. And it was a reminder of why I don't like that type of coaster. I, I think it's going to fall off the tracks. That's, That's I know it's I know it's not, but it feels like it's going to. That's the fun of it. You're like, oh, oh, you're just like, you're trusting that the Hershey Park people did their job. And there's something like freeing about that. <laughs> they definitely did their job, but ah, uh, gosh. Uh, give, me, yeah. give me the classic wooden coasters all day, every day, or a good steel coaster. I'm in. I, I love the two coasters that race each other. Um, yes. Those are always super fun. Then you have like teams and then you're like red team or, or, or black team. And then everyone's cheering, hoping that it makes the coaster go faster. Thunder and lightning. Those are the two cars. There you go. Yeah, Thunder I remember that. Yes. So when someone called into the 1-800 number and your job was to communicate excitement and the brand in the first moment, like how did you all do that? There were a couple of things that were really important to me about making that experience not just feel authentic, but be authentic. Uh, it was also really important for us to internalize what our brand was really about and what we wanted the experience to be built on. And so there were two different things that we 
did to help uh, the representatives at 1-800-HERSHEY in particular, but also across the organization to help people really understand and embody these things. When it came to my agents, right? So part of my job at Hershey was hiring new contact center agents, the training programs for those new agents, all of the quality and coaching and development that are in, right? That, that was a big part of what I did. And I was a big believer in the best way to know what it is like to be a customer is to be a customer yourself. And we had a kind of standing uh, belief in that department in um, what were essentially called fam stays or familiarization visits. And what that meant is if, say, Mark, you, you joined my team and most of our business, right, for the people who aren't familiar, Hershey, Pennsylvania, it's seasonal. The park, the majority of what happens at the park is from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That's when it really comes alive, although there's stuff year round. So I would have someone join for the summer. And what we would do in their training period, right, the first few weeks that they're learning is we'd actually send them out to be a guest of the destination. They would get to stay at the different properties. They would go to the restaurants or they would go to the spa. We would, we would visit chocolate world and, you know, create our own Hershey bars or whatever it might be. And there's something magical that happens when someone can actually be a customer of their own brand magical in the sense of not only if you've got a cool brand, right. Or a fun brand, it, it ignites a natural passion and excitement for it. But if there's a challenge and, and don't get me wrong, there were absolutely times where across the destination, we made mistakes. And what was awesome is our agents got to feel the impact of when we didn't get it right. So when they were painting the picture or when they had a, a, a guest call and it was about something that went wrong with that experience, my agents didn't have to fake empathy. They, they felt it. They experienced a lot of those things. And we, I mean, ongoing, that was a big part of the programs I had was about ongoing training and how do we keep the, the, the saw sharpened as, as Covey would say, right? Keeping, keeping things fresh. So that, that was part of it. Is it about that immersive becoming a, a customer, becoming a guest of the brand? For companies that, that can't do that um, or can't do that like uh, literally. So you know, I'll choose an example would be like a debt collections agency. The only way you can do that is like be in debt and not pay your bills. And then somebody uh, over a period of time says, oh, hey, you got to pay your bills. And you either uh, forgot you paid it. You go, oh, shoot, I'm sorry. Let me cover that. Or you go, yeah, honestly, I've been kind of putting that one off because it's been tough. Um, it, it, you can't necessarily recreate empathy in every single space. Um, or can you? So like, you know, what does the playbook look like if you're not able to have that direct experience? Sure. So there's, there's two things that you can do. And one is similar to kind of the other part that we would do for Hershey for all of our employees across the destination. And, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I want to actually give an example. Since you use this example of debt collection, uh, I want to share something a similar isk type of role. I have a friend who worked for a, a lender, a mortgage lender to be exact. And they had a challenge where they were trying to improve uh, customer satisfaction while also focusing on delivering what they believed were quality experiences. And they were at odds with each other. They, they hit what seemed to be internal quality metrics, but customer satisfaction was tanking. And it was specifically around one area, the team that had to call people and tell them that they were denied for their mortgages. Uh, that's a great example of the agents delivering those news, uh, the, the agents delivering that news 
may not have ever been in that type of experience where they were denied for a mortgage. But what they actually did was focused on what's what are the drivers of these types of contacts? What are potential things that are, are causing this to happen in people's lives? And what are the, the best type of people that we need to serve those interactions? In other words, what is the best type of agent? What is the best thing that we could do as a mortgage company? The best thing we could do as a service team for people who are in a situation that they were denied their mortgage. And part of what they realized through this is uh, you're denied your mortgage, right? When you've got uh, an unhealthy financial situation most often. So what they said is, what if, what if we actually trained people around financial counseling and we gave people the opportunity and the, the call wasn't necessarily about, hey, so sorry, we can't do anything for you. You're not getting your mortgage, but saying based off of what we understand, we're not able to do this today, but we've got a few programs to hopefully help you get on the path to, to, to get there because we would love for, you know, more than anything for you to have this opportunity. And part of it's around understanding what that customer is going through. You may not um, have ever not qualified for a mortgage, or you may have never, uh, I think of another, um, worked with the call, the contact center for wounded warrior project. Right. And, and a lot of the people working there, they, they mm. were never uh, at war. They don't know what it's like to suffer from post uh, traumatic stress, uh, post traumatic stress syndrome. Right. But they're able to be trained to, to address those types of situations. And so I think part of it is understanding what's happening in the customer, the other dynamics that might be at play and training and enabling them. Aside from that though, Mark, one of the core drivers is really going back to understanding why are the agents there to begin with? What brought them to the, the team? What brought them to the business? And what is the business about at the end of the day? And one of the things I really loved at Hershey is we were about four core values own, anticipate, delight, and inspire. And to those agents, and frankly, to anybody who worked across the destination, didn't matter what you did, we spent a ton of time focusing on what does it mean for each one of those core values? What does it mean for you to own in your role, for you to own the, the interactions you have, whether it's with coworkers, employees? What does it mean to anticipate based off of what you do here? What does it mean to delight? What does it mean to inspire? And when we, we shift, uh, shift the the way we think from what is the work that we do to what is the impact that we can have, it just, it puts a different level of ownership on us. It, it drives each of us in a different way and understanding what brought someone to that business and, and helping them see the impact that they can have. That's how you pull the best out within people. That's how you get them to exert discretionary effort, right? So, so the fam stuff aside, right? That's, that's a nice to have, but even those things, if I didn't get someone to understand those core values and I didn't get someone to actually feel and see the impact that they could have, I could send them on free visits all day, every day. That didn't make them a great agent. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm hearing, Justin, is that um, you know, fundamentally, if the agent can't experience the thing themselves, uh, we can at least teach them as much about what that experience is like as humanly possible. So not only do they have, can they create a mental context or imagine uh, exactly what the experience might be like, but they can also potentially bring something else to the table where they're able to, um, in a way that, that, that recognizes that they've never had that experience like wounded warriors, you know, it would be very tough to try to teach a, a wounded warrior how to, um, you know, adapt to their 
circumstances if you haven't um, you know had that yourself. But I think what you're saying is that you know not only can you intellectually understand it better and kind of craft um, in your mind what that experience would be like if you experienced it, but also you can find select places where you can give the other individual something that. Uh, that they have not had before, something that because you've been endowed with this knowledge, you're able to do. Yeah, it, it really is a matter of understanding where they're coming from. And again, I go to that point of what is what is the impact that you can have on this situation, right? Or even having relative context. All right, so you may maybe you never were denied for a mortgage, but talk to me about a time when you really wanted something more than anything else and you didn't get it. Love that. How'd you feel in that moment, right? That That type of reframing, is sometimes the the very small thing that we can do to help people have a better understanding of the situation they're walking into. Exactly what you said. It seems like it should be at the foundation of every single CX program, CX training program for the next decade is, is exactly that sort of reframing. Yeah, it's, I've, gosh, there's... Um... Or all of the the second piece to it is is execution is doing the things that you need to do doing the basics doing the foundation um, and you know one of the things that we'll often tell folks is that it's not like there is some big undiscovered customer experience philosophy that if only you knew that then you deliver good customer experiences like freaking read about it. Go be a customer, read a blog, go online, listen to a speaking event, go to a conference. The information is out there in 99.9% of cases. It's about taking the things that uh, that we've learned that we we know are at the heart of what it means for a business and a customer to work together and and to put that into the experience that, that you offer your customers. I love that, Mark. And it, it resonates with me because I've taken some, uh, I, I try to be a curator of wisdom. I, I always want to be a learner and I've had the, um, really cool opportunity to be just in the presence of some brilliant, brilliant people. And two things that stand out to me, uh, from, from those types of experiences. Uh, one, there was a gentleman we were at to dinner one time and he said, Justin, I'm going to tell you something right now. There's no such thing as uh, new wine there's just old wine in new bottles. And I think part of that is what, what we're getting to here that mm -hmm. most of the stuff has already been out there and you can go and look at the latest book or the latest keynote or the latest thought leader. And they really aren't saying anything that hasn't been said before. What they're really doing is taking something that's been said many times, but putting it in a new bottle and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but an, another um, person who just have a ton of respect for challenged me maybe a decade ago and said, Justin, I want you to go back and I want you to read customer service books that came out in the fifties, in the sixties and, and go back there. And, and I remember one of the books was uh, the best service is no service by Bill Price. And you start reading these books that are decades old now and very quickly realize yeah, this is, this is what it is. There are some just um, evergreen foundational truths to the work that you know, you and I, Mark, and, and I'd imagine the people listening to this have been called to that if we are very disciplined in those practices and we understand how to apply them to whatever environment we're in, we are unstoppable when it comes to delivering great experiences. 
that I think that is so such good advice. It's funny because I remember when I was first getting uh, into customer experience, you know, I went online and said, you know, best books on CX, and um, uh, wow, lightning bolt! My goodness. Um, and the book I heard that, that, yeah, geez. Uh, we're in St. Louis and that's a it's tornado country. Uh, not as much as like, you know, a, a Kansas or an Oklahoma, but uh, still enough that uh, I shiver in my boots when I think uh, when the sky turns green. But I'll I'll keep it together in this podcast. Don't worry. All right. Good, good. It's I'm, I'm in coastal Carolina and we're hurricane country, but right now we're in a drought. And what I've learned about coastal Carolina is we probably get all of our rain comes from one big storm and it just doesn't rain the rest of the year. So I don't, I don't know that one's better than the other, but. Yeah. So um, what, I, what I was thinking is, uh, you know, I looked online for the best CX books and uh, the one that came up was the Nordstrom way. So I thought the Nordstrom way was just an awesome book and it didn't, it didn't say anything that you wouldn't quite expect, but it puts stories around the principles. Like you do what you need to do for the customer to be thrilled and, and that's the most important thing is that the customer leaves thrilled, not that they leave and they, you know, got what they wanted and they're angry and they stomp out, but you know, you didn't give them, you know, too much, but if the customer leaves and they got exactly what they wanted, that is how you, how you uh, generate experiences where people go tell their friends. That's, that's exactly it. And that's, I mean, that's a great example of one. Uh, I rolled over to my bookshelf. So I had a recommendation of a friend a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this topic of, of older customer service books. He said, I got one for you. So this one came out in 1990. It's called, it's not my department, how to get the service you want exactly the way you want it. And I've, I've gotten just a, a little bit of the way through this. And it's, it's so funny, Mark, because, you know, I start reading these things and it's like, this is, you know, somebody was on a keynote stage earlier this year at a conference talking about customer experience. Now is the time of customer experience. I'm like, customer experience mattered 30 plus years ago and it mattered 40 years ago. Uh, it's just, you know, we've got attention on it right now, which is a great thing. Yeah. But let's not, let's not pretend that we've like suddenly discovered a cure to, you know, an unknown disease. This is, this is a problem that we've been solving for a really long time. Yeah, I'll pose a, a controversial opinion for a second. Um, I might even say that the world evolved away from customer service. That you know, uh, when things were at a smaller scale and you could only buy things from people in your neighborhood, uh, your reputation was what you had, and everybody's purchase habits were built up around going to the same place, going to the same place. It wasn't like you had a million options and you were going to choose from a million vendors and you had complete indifference from all of them. It's like you bought from Sam down the block. And then as we started uh, distributing more goods and services at scale, and as we started getting geographically uh, farther away from the creation and the production and the distribution, and as we were able to have something shipped where we don't see who made it, we don't see who sold it. We don't even see who delivered it. None of those things um, that uh, companies started feeling like, you know what? Maybe the most important thing isn't good service. Maybe a, a good product is good enough. So I, I think in a lot of ways, the world has evolved away from customer service. And now we're kind of feeling the tail end of that lash where they say, okay, 
everyone now can deliver something. Everyone can generate a good product at a good price. Now, what's going to make companies stand out? It's the companies that are there for you in those in that section of experiences where you really need them. And if you, that company is there for you when you really need them, that's how you build trust. And that's how you decide I am sticking with this company for the next one, two, three, or, or more years. You make an interesting point, Mark. I mean, it's the, the pendulum is always swinging from, from one side to the other. And what, what we saw happen was businesses could scale in a way like never before, which equaled they could profit in a way like never before. And money does funny things to people. And I agree with the, is there some whiplash? Yeah, when it comes to service at scale, I think businesses have realized that you have to find a way to balance scaling distribution, scaling product availability, uh, while not sacrificing the service experience. That said, some businesses have been able to get away with doing that and may continue for a while. And I can frankly even think of a few experiences I had this week where clearly the brand still doesn't care, right? Not enough to do something about it. But I also believe, Mark, that for every business that scaled to a level that they became a household name and we heard about them and they focused on doing all these other things, through all of that, there were still businesses that focused on what you talked about. There's a reason why in so many uh, towns and cities, Main Street is making a comeback. There's a reason why you know, people talk about shopping small and shopping local because there is some sort of gravitational pull pulling us in right to that type of experience. And, and yes, I, I think I agree with you that it's, it's part of uh, uh, things normalizing, but, but I don't think it was completely lost on us. I think, you know, there were still plenty of businesses that that was a core focus, delivering a great experience and, and still focusing on product and all those other things. Totally agree. And, and you could even say in, in a lot of ways, it was companies reinventing customer service, not neglecting it. You know, like Amazon uh, from their perspective has the absolute best customer service you could possibly have because they're uh, customer obsessed and customer centric. It just so happens that there's, uh, or at least there used to be not, not, not robust customer service capabilities and ways to reach out to them and ways to communicate with them and uh, get issues fixed. Um, but they delivered uh, customer service of maximum convenience, um, you know, speed and price. And you could say that that's a new type of service that, that we haven't seen before. It is, but with anything, I, I do think we have to ask ourselves the question, at what cost are those things delivered? And Amazon's a great example of that. One of the ways that Amazon really kind of came to the, the forefront of the conversation, part of it was around the availability of products, but then the second came in how fast they could deliver that. And you know, I've never worked in an Amazon warehouse. I've never been to an Amazon warehouse, but I've read plenty of articles around what can happen, right? When we focus solely on just delivering at, at a certain level. Um, and I wanna make sure that, right, we focus on great customer experiences, but we shouldn't focus on great customer experiences at the, at the sake of great employee experiences, right? We've gotta find a way to, to make sure both of those are, are happening. Yeah, I, I was uh, interviewing uh, a CX leader um, just yesterday. And he was talking about how he started his career in a grocery store. 
and um, and and it was a super high performing grocery store that would do uh, 50 million in revenue a year, and that was in the 70s. Um, so just massive volume in New York City, and uh, he was talking about one of the things he learned was how to de-escalate customer conflicts. And uh, I asked him, you know, what is the main principles that you use? And he said, uh, well, first, you know, you acknowledge the customer and you, you apologize. He said, but then you need to back up your employee. He said, there's, there's never any criticizing the employee in front of the customer. Like you are supposed to put your employee on a pedestal and make sure that they feel uh, ultimately supported. And I think that's actually a really underappreciated principle that you can extrapolate and say, what is the value of making sure that the folks who work at your company are always feeling backed up, are always feeling supported, not just with a frustrated customer, but in general? Uh, what does that do for their ability to then deliver better services? And also, um, you know, you have two brands. Obviously, it's one brand, but you know, you have your brand as a company, and then you have your brand as an employer. And they usually at some way, shape and form at some point in time merge together. And the last thing you want is people leaving your company, going out in the world being like, yeah, they make a lot of money, but boy, are they assholes. Yeah, that's, it's dead on. And again, thank you technology for, you know, providing even more transparency into employee experiences at brands as well. Um, it's, it's, it's just always uh, a conversation, right. Around um, at, at the business level, you know, what, what does it cost the business ultimately in terms of uh, investing your employees versus having to deal with turnover uh, in delivering a great experience or having to deal with the detractors, right? There's, there's that constant trade-off and it's not, I don't want to downplay uh, how difficult that is, right? Because if it really was as easy saying, Hey, keep your employees satisfied, keep your customers happy. Um, pe people wouldn't argue that and say, Hey, and we're profitable and whatever, but you know, when, when it comes down to the highest levels where these decisions have to be made, there's often a lot of um, compromise that has to happen. And, and I would just encourage senior business leaders as they think through that compromise to, to really understand the impacts of it. I think it's often, you know, easy to say, hey, let's look at a spreadsheet or let's talk about the forecast and make decisions based off of that and, and totally lose sight of the other downhill effects that, that we could be causing. Yeah, let's go deeper on that. What sort of compromises have you seen? How and how have you seen great companies balance um, the needs of the employee, the needs of the customer, and the needs of the company? Yeah. So, gosh, compromises can come in all shapes and and sizes. I have a couple examples that come to mind that I'll, I'll you know maybe hit on quickly here. So. One, I remember even a time when I was at one of the businesses that I worked in and we were trying to invest in a specific tool for our, our agents, mostly because the system that they were using at the time was adding extra handle time. It was complicated. It was frustrating the employees. And I had a ton of just verbatim feedback in terms of the frustration, the angst that it caused them. Hmm. The way that the the solution was kind of pitched internally and you know i'll take ownership for this the way that we pitched it was really around improving the customer experience and it was like gosh you know if, if only we did this we would believe that you know x would happen for the customers and ultimately the answer that we got back was well we think it's good enough we think that the way customers rate our business today is good enough 
because we didn't have evidence of the amount of times I had employees quit because they were just fed up with the tools being ineffective. I didn't have kind of an opportunity cost of what would it look like if we were to able incrementally grow the customer you know, satisfaction ratings or, you know, whatever the metrics of success happened to be at the time, I guess wasn't backed up. And so often the compromise happens because we don't know what we don't know. So again, not necessarily intentional, but we, we, we don't know what agents are leaving because of a poor system. We don't know what revenue we're missing out of or what customer uh, word of mouth marketing we're missing out on because of this. Those are, those are, sometimes just almost impossible to, to get our minds around, right? So that's part of where the compromise comes in. Um, other times it's really short-sighted stuff. You know, hey, we're trying to reduce cost per contact. So what would it mean if we just reduced our agent headcount, make customers wait a little while longer, right? So if your agents take more work, customers wait a little while. I've seen plenty of businesses, especially contact centers, make that type of decision, again, purely based off of cost without side of, what is it doing to agent burnout? What is it doing to customer you know, satisfaction and loyalty? Because those aren't, those aren't square numbers on a spreadsheet, right? It doesn't have a dollar sign in front of it easily. And so unless somebody does the work, I don't think about it, right? Those, those are kind of the drivers of compromise. And I mean, we could probably tangent on this, Mark, but ultimately it, it comes down to what are the hidden factors, right? When we think about what is the cost of not doing this, it's often looking at what is the missed opportunity? What are we seeing in terms of attrition or burnout or turnover, right? These types of things. And, and if we do some fact-finding or if we're the leader, right, within those parts of the business, if we can maybe do some better research ourselves, I think we'd actually uncover a whole bunch of places where we sacrifice on customer employee experience, right, at the sake of saving a buck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of Balto's customers uh, did something really smart and what they did is, uh, you know, they have uh, an employee survey every year and, uh, you know, they have an ENPS goal. So what is their employee net promoter score? And the policy that they set up or the process they set up is that whatever the top two most commonly recurring items are from the agents, the leadership must put together a plan to address both of those items and submit it to the CEO. And... Um, I thought that was a really smart system that, you know, obviously, you know, there's, I'm sure item number three could be even bigger than items number one and two, or item number four also matters. But the idea that there's just a process in place that says, we are going to listen to your voice and no matter what it is, put together a plan to make it better um, for whatever your number one, number two concerns are, that's powerful. I think a lot of those processes are underused and a lot of organizations could, could have more of those things to be regularly taking the feedback of their employees and their agents and making sure that something actionable happens. Uh, that's, that's absolutely critical. And I love that you have a customer who does that because so often it's one of three things that I hear from uh, employees in, in any type of business. It's either A, that they're not asked for their feedback, uh, B, they're asked for it, but nothing happens with it, or they're asked for something, something is done with it, but then it's actually never shared back with the team. I remember I had one consulting client where they were all mad about changes that were happening in the way the office was organized. Turns out it was on the base, it was based off of employee feedback that they said, Hey, employees said they want this, the majority wanted this. So let's go ahead and do with this. 
people didn't realize that that it was as a result of their feedback. Um, what I what I would encourage two two quick things just as nuances to that one. Any business leader can do that without a formal survey. Just grab coffee with your people and ask them very simply, what are what do you what would you like to see us, you know, keep doing as a business? What are things that you want to see us stop doing? What are things that, you know, this the whole start, stop, continue, right? What should we start doing? What should we stop? What should we keep doing? And just sit down and 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 this was an exercise I would do with my team is throughout the year. Just part of my budget was to take each of my employees out to coffee, just a little bit of time together to hear what they're doing. So, so I think that's important. The other thing though, and this is, so last week I was um, speaking at a bunch of different uh, events. And one of the things I said in every single room was around how we, how we measure how people feel about their experiences. And one of the common ways that we measure is this, you know, the idea of net promoter, right? Are you likely to recommend this in that case, this company, right? To, to someone who might be looking for a job and where I challenged businesses is if they tell you that, that they're likely to recommend, that is one thing. The real measure of are they a promoter is whether or not they've actually done it. And so, so where I, I, I think the feedback on how can we improve is awesome. But what's even better is if you can measure whether or not your customers actually are recommending your business, if your employees actually are referring jobs to their friends, that's the real indicator of whether or not they promote your brand, not, not a number that they give you on a scale. Yeah. Justin, I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's, it's, it, it just hit my brain and I lost it. Um, the, the Balto customer success team uh, was talking about something exactly like that. So we don't use net promoter score. We use another type of score. It's uh, exactly around that. I can't remember the name. Maybe you know it. Um, and it's basically uh, not, you know, would you recommend this company to a friend or peer? It's have you recommended this company in the last six weeks? Yes or no? Um, and then the other question, there's a second question, so you kind of can see where they are on the, uh, on the scale from uh, I would recommend you to I would actively dissuade. That was the second question, which is, you know, have you persuaded someone not to go with this company in the last six weeks? I can't remember the name of that score, but that's what we started doing internally. And uh, I totally understand the value behind that. And it's been really uh, illuminating, honestly. Um, of just like, go back, think in the last few weeks, can you remember telling someone, oh yeah, I, you should check this company out or not? Yeah, it's that measure of hypothetical versus actual, that very small shift in wording makes all the difference, not only in how people respond, but what a business can actually do with that insight. Mm -hmm. um, Justin, there's so much noise in the CX space uh, right now. And by the way, that's you know indicative of, of all the wonderful attention that it's getting. So, you know, blessing and a curse, and there's a huge positive aspect to that. But there is a lot of noise. Um, you know, what are what companies are you seeing doing a really good job breaking through? And what are they doing? And what is their message that's allowing them to break through and provide something new and valuable that perhaps we haven't heard before? Do you want my answer on who are the companies that are really good at marketing themselves so that it seems this way, or the companies that are just doing the work and are just getting it done regardless of whether or not people write books about them? Do I sound Ooh, bitter? Does that? No, no, that no not at all. <laughs> a little bit. I, this is actually really frustrating for me, Mark, right? Because because yeah. so often we've got we've got these brands that's like ah, they're the best. This is the person. This brand's the best at customer service, right? And and there are some companies that don't get me wrong. They do a really great job. Like I shop at Trader Joe's, you know, I'm all about Nordstrom's and 
you know, all, all of those things like, cool, great. They're awesome. Sound um, a little better. But because here's the thing, because they've got some like really good marketing power or an executive who happened to be a very charismatic speaker and they benefited greatly from that. And I'm so happy for them. I genuinely am happy for them. Uh, I don't want to talk about any of them right now. And, and I, I want to speak about this, this act in a very general way, yeah. because there are lots of businesses that I see in terms of delivering breakthrough service. I, I don't want to focus on just naming a couple because there, there really are a lot. I want to focus on how they're doing it, right? Because that's what I think is what really, really matters here. You can read and search whatever else on any other brand. Key, few key components. Number one is having uh, a very um, clear way of understanding all, all of the parts of a customer's journey with that brand. When I think about the definition of customer experience, I love uh, my good friend Annette Franz, uh, former president of the CXPA, says that customer experience is this, the sum of all interactions that a customer has with the brand and how they feel about those interactions. And, and at a super fundamental level, the businesses that are breaking through have figured two things out, or really three things. One, how do we get a good view on this idea of the sum of all interactions? It's like a tangled web of spaghetti thrown against the wall. So that in itself is really hard, but it's important to understand before somebody comes a customer, as they become a customer, after they become a customer, how can you get visibility into what's happening? Where are the points of tension? Where are the, the points of victory, right? Understanding the actual places where those interactions help happen. So that's part one. Part two is this idea of then how they feel about the interactions. And, and, I, and I often say that there are three ways that the best businesses measure this. Number one is they, they have a way to understand what, what customers tell them, right? What is a customer willing to tell you about their experience? They find a way to understand what customers are telling others about their experience, right? Whether that's listening to forums mm -hmm. or social, whatever. But then they also have a way to connect it back to what they actually do. What are the actions that they take? One of the best indicators of their feelings, right, are the actions that follow them. So it's about clear view on the sum of the the some of all the interactions, uh, a, a way of measuring those three things, what they tell you, what they tell others and the actions that they take as a result. And then the, the last part of that is then, you know, unlocking the people at the moments of truth. Uh, or if you think about it this way, there's, there's research called the, essentially the peak end rule, right? That the things that people remember the most were the peak and at the end of an experience. And, and what I found is that when the employees who have, who, who appear at those intersections, Right, whether it's the contact center, whether it's the front desk, whether it's the delivery person, whatever it is, when we empower them with access to what has happened on this idea of the sum of the interactions and how the customers felt up to that point, right, then they are truly enabled to, in that moment, be prepared and deliver the best possible experience. And then after that, it theoretically takes care of itself, right? Because the business is now continuing to take whatever happened in that interaction and now add it into this idea of the sum of the parts and, and have a mechanism for measuring. Simple idea, incredibly complicated to deliver, but that's that's ultimately what those best brands do. Hmm. Yeah, I remember um, I was talking to a brand marketer uh, a couple years ago and uh, 
this is when Balta was a, was much smaller. And I said, you know, I want to build Balta's brand. I want to invest in the brand. And he said, okay, great. The first way you want to do that is by investing in your customers. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. You must have misheard me. I want to build the brand. <laughs> and he said, uh, no, the brand is the sum of interactions that the market has with your company. And the first place you want to start to build a brand is get your customers as happy as humanly possible. Um, I, I think that we underestimate a lot, or at least don't talk about or calculate into our business plans enough, how when you have a happy customer or when you have an unhappy customer, uh, it's not just that person's retention opportunity or repeat purchase opportunity. Like they are taking that and scaling whatever their feeling is out to the world with a freaking megaphone. Um, how many times have you seen a tweet from someone who said, I will never use company again, company X again. Let me tell you about how bad my experience was. Um, I'll tell you, you know, when, when we do uh, a post on LinkedIn as a company, or I do a post as an individual, it's going to get thousands and thousands of views. If thousands of people just saw this impression of your company as somebody thinking that they're so pissed off that you probably respect because you're connected on social media in some way or form, uh, some way, shape or form, somebody you respect saying, I will never do business with a company again, and they were wrong, and here's why, um, that is meaningful. And, and I, I don't think that we place enough weight in how the, in the secondary effects of how customers make their decisions based on what they've heard uh, from your actual customers who had a real experience. Uh, no, that's an excellent point, Mark. And I, I think of, uh, you know, there've been a few people who've focused on this topic uh, specifically over the past few years. Jay Bayer's one who comes to mind. You know, he, he recently wrote a book because now it's a few years old, uh, Talk Triggers, Talk Triggers, which looks at, you know, word of mouth marketing. And it, it talks about, you know, what are these things, uh, both from being a remarkable brand standpoint, but, you know, ultimately, what are the things that people talk about? What does he and say? What does he say? In terms of? Like the content of the book, like, like what is his, his view on that? Uh, I would tell you to, to get a copy and, and read it for yourself. Um, you know, so what's, what's really interesting is he, he talks about this idea of um, what are the, like, what are, what are the, the, the memorable things, right? And how as we, as we as a brand, do we create those things that become talk triggers, right? Become the things that people want to share, become mm -hmm. the things that people want to, you know, invite other people into. Um, and, and then, you know, there's, there's, I think a lot for a lot of our businesses, there are these negative talk triggers, right? There are these negative things that happen that to your point can kind of just cascade out. And, you know, one person may have never seen interacted with your brand, but that's what they've heard. Right. And to my, to my earlier point, even about these brands that have been highly marketed as the best customer service brands, you know, the best customer experience, the same thing is true there, right? Somebody may have never shopped at any of those things, but I, I and I've seen this play out right when I've run research programs. Hey, tell me about uh, brands who, who deliver great experiences. And like, oh, this brand, it's like, oh, tell me about a great experience you had with that brand. I've actually never shopped there. Okay. Let's reframe the context, right? Tell me about a brand that you've actually interacted with. What made a great experience? What was it about that experience that made it great? Right. Hmm. Uh, Justin, if we extrapolate all this and we, we look at where CX is now and where CX is going, 
and we we take the trends that we're seeing and you put it all the way out to the year 2030. What do you think customer experience, what do you think the contact center looks like in 2030? Uh, probably not terribly different from the contact center of 2021. And, and here's why I answer that question that way. I look back to the contact center of 2010. Um, I look at the contact center of 2000. Now, the contact center of 2000 to the contact center of today looks very different. And, you know, over the past 20 years, we've had rapid acceleration of a number of channels. Uh, over the next nine years, what do I think is going to play out? I think that a lot of the channels today will kind of grow and or be sifted out in terms of adoption. And I think that in terms of customers who are looking for mobile service and what we might see with SMS or the adoption of video, I think we're going to continue to see them to grow in significance. I would suspect that in terms of how businesses can leverage automation or get better about self-service, we'll continue to see the highly repetitive, predictable tasks drop out of you know human to human interaction and that will happen much more through you know an app or a website or an interactive ivr whatever it might be and what that will leave us with and this is my reason why i don't think it'll be very much different because i think for you know a number of businesses they've they've been focused and, and are starting to get here even more so what we're going to be left with is the the human to human human interactions are the complicated they're the nuanced they're the ones that um, are interesting, but also challenging. And, you know, the other stuff is going to be resolved through us helping ourselves. That's, that's where I suspect that will be. Um, I would probably put the giant asterisk of, if you would have asked me my predictions two years ago about where we'd be today, I uh, would probably have gotten them all wrong. Um, but that's, that's my bet. That's my bet on what we'll see. Justin, uh, super interesting perspective. So good to have you. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. And real quick, where can people find you? You got anything you can promote? Because uh, uh, if you got if you can promote it, people probably want it. Cool, Mark. Uh, on social media, I'm at Justin M. Robbins. M like Mike, Justin M. Robbins. Pretty much all my handles are that. Uh, you can also email me, justin at cxeffect.com. I'm regularly putting out blogs, got a number of research projects in the works. So I'd say just follow me there, pop over to cxeffect.com to uh, stay up to date on my latest. Beautiful. Justin, thanks again. And we will talk again real soon. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate the time today. You too.